All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as always, I'm very thankful to worship together and share God's word. If you're near visiting, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. I want to welcome you. Yeah, I mean, like, I love the song. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas because no one in California can relate to that. It's beginning to look like it always looks here. <laughs> it's the same exact thing, right? Like, we're the only place where, like, hot coffee in, like, the middle of December, nobody wants it because it's too hot, right? So that's one thing I envy about, like, maybe the East Coast. You actually have seasons and, you know, it reflects and maybe get in more in the mood. But Advent, that is one thing that universally, no matter what the weather is, the church institutes in the calendar to help you to be mindful that there are seasons. And in the church, there is a rhythm and season as well where we should always be thinking about Christ, but particularly we're thinking about the apex of history where he enters and he comes into human form and flesh. And so I look forward to sharing that next week with Christmas service as well. Also, I mentioned this last week and I want to do a couple more times so it doesn't just go out the window. Uh, Shout out to everyone who comes to worship on time. Again, this is not a legalistic thing where like we're rule keeping or anything, but I do want to shout out. I noticed like a few members uh, more recently for whatever reason, I noticed you didn't come on time that much before and now you are. And I think that's great. That's not because we're attendance keeping or anything like that. But I liken it to like in Southern California, uh, Sunday worship is seen as like a five course meal. And people have been conditioned to think like the main course is the sermon. So they think, hey, so long as you come by course four, like you're going to get fed. But actually that's not true. That's not biblical, nor is it true to experience, I would say. I would say it's one meal with five parts. So you're missing out on a main course of the main course when you kind of miss worship and praise and it's all part of it. And so I would love for Grace Hill to be a church. Again, we're not rule keeping. We're not like keeping attendance, but just for you and the Lord, I wish that for your own soul that you can feast upon all that uh, the corporate gathering has to offer. So I did want to mention that as well. All right, with that aside, if you're joining for the first time, we are in week four of a five-week sermon series of the book of Malachi. And if you've been joining for the past few weeks. I think you may have noticed Malachi. It's not the most uh, easy book to think about or talk through. Uh, Malachi is not one of those guys that will beat around the bush. He has no problem exposing just the reality of how you're really doing with God. So he is not the prototypical surface level shallow guy. He'll go straight to business and go straight to specifics. And as we've been seeing up to this point through Malachi, God is having this direct conversation with his people and he's addressing their unfaithfulness and how they have departed from him. And he is not wishy-washy at all. He's very specific. In first week, we see God grounds his relationship with them, which he does for all believers today. So I want to remind you, no matter what kind of week you lived, no matter how you're feeling, no matter how distant you feel, if you're a Christian here sitting today, God loves you. That's always point number one. Nothing you could do can make him not love you. But oftentimes it's because he loves you, as we see in Malachi, that he got something to say to you, right? If he didn't care about you, he would not, he would just let you do whatever you want. But it's because he loves you that he wants to talk about things that are affecting his relationship, right? And so we see God says, my people have been unfaithful. How? They're giving me their leftovers. They're not bringing right offerings before me. They're dishonoring my name. And he's very realistic. He's like, you wouldn't do that to anyone. Why are you doing that to me, who you supposedly call King of Kings and Lord of Lords? That's not okay. That's going to affect our relationship. And the last week we saw God also cares not just about your vertical relationship with him, but your relationship with each other, because those things are tied together. So he says, hey, if you think you want to be close to me, but you're not doing well in your marriage or treating your spouse the right way or seeking to love them and honor that covenant, or even like your close friends and family or be it siblings. I know it's the holiday season. So we're going to see families. Like if you don't care about those things, you can't feel close to me because I care deeply about how my relationship with you reflects in relationship with others. And they were being treacherous, right? And so today we're going to see he continues that conversation. And unfortunately, he doesn't ease up. He goes even more specific and gets even more sensitive, which is probably one of the subjects we don't like talking about in our modern context, especially in relation to spirituality, which is our money. 
And we have some ground to cover today, so I hope you kind of buckle up, okay? Uh, I was joking earlier. Usually, I, I, I pull out my manuscript, and I'll edit to try to take stuff out. Every time I open it, I kept putting stuff in. I think that's the spirit, okay? Because rarely does that happen. I was like, I got to stop opening my iPad because just things get, keep adding on. So you're here for a reason, I believe. So if you, in light of that, let's turn to our Bibles or our programs. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. And here as we open God's word, can we all rise together as we believe God is moving, present, and speaking through his word every time that we read from it. So Malachi chapter 3, uh, for those who are curious, this is the ESV version. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, starting from verse 6 to 12. It's the reading of God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would give good soil in our hearts to be open and receptive to hear what you would have to say to us today. And for those of us in particular where it's especially relevant, that we would know what it looks like to return to you and to restore closeness to you, God, as your word tells us. So we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago uh, at our church, we had the privilege of witnessing the baptism of two of our brothers. One of them was actually our presider, Jason. There's pictures up there just for reference. Hopefully you got to be there. And I love baptism services because I think it's just a a gift to the church. It's such a powerful visual reminder and symbol of basically what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Uh, If you don't know, basically what's symbolized in baptism is you hear the person's testimony of how Jesus worked in their life. And as they are dunked in the water and then they are submerged and then they come out of it, that's salvation in a nutshell, right? And if you're a Christian sitting here today, that's why, um, quick plug, if you haven't been baptized, please get baptized, Uh, sure, there's an aspect where it's a command from Jesus, but it is a gift to your spiritual walk and journey. You are missing out if you have not done that, right? We always say it's like you were married, but you never had a wedding. And so signups are there. All our members, especially, would consider getting baptized. But that aside, what's basically saying is if you are being a Christian and you confess Christ, what you're saying is I am now dead to all the things that I once held dear, to all the things that I held so tightly in my grip, to the life that I once had, that's all gone, crucified with Christ. And now I'm a new creation. I have new desires, but most easy way to put it is namely, I have a new allegiance to a new king and Lord who is King Jesus, right? That's what is being symbolized there. That's essentially what it means to be a Christian. Now, I know for many of us, and I talk in this way a lot because I think a lot of us are churched. A lot of us grew up in a Christian context. So the way that we entered into a relationship with Christ for a lot of us, we said yes to church and Christianity because our parents forced us to. That's just all we've ever known. It was, quite frankly, socially advantageous for some of us. Like, all my friends are Christian, so I got to kind of stay up with the social flow. So that's why some of us did it. But here's the reality. The reason that's so unfortunate, and I'm seeing this more and more based off the types of people that come into our church you will never tap into the power and blessings that Jesus has to offer in the spirit 
If you don't come to grips with the tangible fact that by virtue of being a Christian, you have chosen to surrender all that you have and all that you are to Jesus, right? That's, that's very biblically sound. It's in the same way that, for example, if you get married and say, I do, just by saying I do does not mean you are tapping into the fullness of what a marital oneness union can be. You have to work at it. You have to continually surrender and serve to each other, right? You need to draw near to each other. So you can say I do and feel super distant from your spouse. Those two things are not one and the same. I bring this up because there's a saying that goes like this. For many Christians, we get baptized and our, our, the wholeness of our body is submerged, but we keep our wallets out of the water. Could you imagine if like our brother Jason did that? Like he's about to be submerged. He's like, hold up real quick. Takes out his wallet. Okay, you can baptize me. And the, the wallet's just out of the water. There's a saying that goes like that. And what a visual example of what for a lot of us feel, which is, hey, when I become a Christian, God, I'm open to the idea of giving you my obedience, giving you my service, giving you my time. But money, that's mine. I work hard to earn that. It's my money and that is off limits. Now, nobody actually says that, obviously. But functionally, that is the truth for a lot of us. Now, again, money is a sensitive topic for obvious reasons. It's, it's the way it's talked about oftentimes is not done well in the church. But today, we are landing directly on a text that addresses it, which is why maybe I feel just this conviction to like really preach it through the text. But one thing I want to clarify, to raise the stakes for all of us, Christmas marks the time that Jesus proved to the fact that he is true to what he said, which is, I'm coming. Came the first time, historic, proven, resurrected, which also proves to the fact that he's coming again. When he comes again, the Bible is crystal clear. Christian or not, you will have to face him face to face. You will have to give account. And one thing you have to give account for is how did you spend your money? He said, give me the receipts. How did you steward over all the possessions and wealth that I gave to you? How? Raises the stakes. And it's unfortunate because I think many of us, myself included, I just think we haven't been discipled well on what the Bible has to say about how we should view and spend our money. This is so unfortunate because it's not because the Bible has nothing to say. Randy Alcorn, he's an author. He wrote a book about this. It should be up there. He says, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, of mo- re- real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. And he's not just pulling that out of nowhere. He's, he's extrapolating that from what scripture says about money. But here's a biblical principle that serves as the grounds for everything we're about to talk about. There is a fundamental powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. Okay? So that's the umbrella foundational context. So let's jump into the conversation God has from our text today. In verse 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, I love it. God is constantly, time and time again, reminding of his love for them. Right? He's grounding in his love. He did it already in chapter 1, but he does it again here in chapter, chapter uh, 3, verse 6. He says, look, and the, the phrase children of Jacob, hopefully you guys are remembering, that's specifically pointing to what he said in chapter 1. Right? Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have hated. From you to your parents, to your grandparents, to your great-great-great-great-grandparents, my love has not changed. 
Since day one, I have been faithful to the agreement I've made. I've been faithful to the covenant. No matter how disobedient you have been, I have watched over you. I've protected you as a nation. I have kept my promise. But you, you turned aside. You have been unfaithful. The idea of turning aside that it says in the text is the idea and, and, and practice of altering contracts. So it's almost like you made an agreement with God. He's kept his part of the agreement. But you've changed the terms time and time again. That's what's called turn aside, unfaithful. And so what does God say? The reason he's even having this conversation, which many would argue is the whole theme of this text, he says, return. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I love this about the God of scripture. God's people have grown distant and apathetic towards him. And he addresses them and brings up issues, not because he's just angry or he wants to judge them or he just wants to call them out. But everything he's saying is because he wants them to come home, to return, to repair the relationship. I'm sure many of us can relate to this, especially married couples. When you experience relational conflict and tension and distance, it's not the only way to regain intimacy to deal with the issue. Every counselor will tell you that. You can play the game of, oh, we're cool, or maybe you're more like me, you're conflict avoider, so you just think you've suppressed it. No, the intimacy can only be restored and repaired when you specifically deal with the issues, not with generalities or shallow apologies, but you have to get into the nitty gritty. That's what God does. And he does that because he loves, because he cares. So he says, return. Maybe that's going to be the takeaway for some of you today. Return to the Lord. And Israel responds, how? How shall we return, God? I bet you some of them didn't even think they were far. And maybe that's some of you today. Like, God, what do you mean? I'm doing everything a Christian does. What do you mean return to me? And here's what God says. The main issue in our text, verse 8, you're robbing me. That's what's causing an issue in our relationship. And they're thinking like, what? How can we possibly rob you? And it gets even more specific in your tithes and contributions. God basically says, you are being unfaithful with your money and possessions by not giving me the tithe. Now, I'm not sure what your background or experience is with the idea of tithing or giving offering. I'm sure for many of us, especially if you grew up in the church, your baseline theology is on a Sunday morning, your parent hands you a crisp dollar bill and says, don't ask any questions. This is what a good Christian does and put it in the offering basket that floats around. Okay, we don't have that offering basket anymore. Uh, sometimes I kind of wish we did, right? Because it's like such a helpful part of worship. But th- maybe that's our baseline. That's not to say all of us, that's all we know, but I'm sure many of us generally have that image and picture in mind. Whatever the case, clearly the concept of giving and tithing is something that is a core part of the church. I'm pretty sure any church you go to has a time where even like we do every Sunday announces, uh, if you wish to give, thank you for giving. They'll explicitly sometimes say tithing and we announce it every single week. And please know, I was so overwhelmed as I was preparing this message by the the mountainous amount of things the Bible has to say about money and wealth. It is scary how much the Bible has to say about it. So for the sermon, I have to focus the sermon, otherwise we'll be here 10 hours, specifically on the practice of giving tithe and offering, okay? That's what I'm going to focus and narrow it down to because I think that's what our text is talking about. And we'll break it down in four easy ways. One, what is tithing? Some of you guys tithe and you don't even know what that means or where that came from. It's just jargon to you, religious jargon, right? So what is tithing? Number two, why do we tithe and give offering? Number three, what does our tithing or offering reveal? 
And then four, I get very specific and practical. How can we grow to do this specifically as Grace Hill? Okay, so what is tithing? And do a quick overview on what God actually was referring to when he mentions the tithe. Tithe literally translates to mean a tenth. Some of you go like, yeah, I knew that. Oh, okay, good job, A plus, right? <laughs> tithe, tenth, that's why people say, oh, do you give 10%, right? That's just kind of the religious culture we grew up in. But every Jew would know much more than that. Because in the context, the tithe was referring to a specific command that God gave through the law to Israel, which was this, bring a tenth of all your goods as a demonstration of not just obedience, but of surrender and trust. And it was coupled with the idea that it's not just the amount that matters, which is true, 10%, but it is also the nature of the offering, which we learned two weeks ago. Bring the first and the best of your grain, your offerings, your livestock. Here's two clear texts that tell you where that came from. So I'm not making this up. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. Is it up there? A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is set apart and holy to the Lord. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord, and how do you honor him? With the first fruits of all your crops, not the leftovers or the bad apples. And the biblical foundation that grounds the heart of tithing since the OT even into today is this fundamental Christian biblical worldview, which is this. All that we have comes from God belongs to the Lord. Let me show you again. I'm setting a biblical worldview here. First Chronicles 29, verse 11 to 12. Here's what it says. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, power, and glory for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Christians sitting here today who believe the Bible, do you believe this? Do you really believe that everything belongs to the Lord, that riches and honor as well come from God? First Corinthians 4, 7 in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says like, hey, everything you have, you received. Like, why are you acting like you did not receive it? Now, some of you guys may be like, but money's different, Pastor Sam. Like, I earned the money. I worked hard for it. And the example that a lot of pastors give with that is like, okay, so how did you earn it? Through my job. How did you get the job? Through education. How did you get the education? Through a family that supported me. How did your family support you? Because they had a certain socioeconomic status. In other words, you were set up to be able to go where you are. All your efforts in the world would not mean much if you're born on the top of a mountain with no leg. So you received your health. You received your opportunities. Again, that's not to discount that you worked hard, but there's a lot of people who work very hard who will never get beyond poverty. Are you fundamentally better than them? That's the theology of scripture. Now, in the case of Israel, it was purely by God's mercy and deliverance that they entered the promised land, right? They were slaves in Egypt, doomed for generations of slavery out of the goodness of God. He creates a nation that didn't even exist before the nation of Israel. And so the tithe was a clear way to remind and train the people of Israel, put God first in recognizing his role in your life and acknowledging their dependence on him. And let me make it clear, this was not an optional thing. It was a tangible, objective, clear expectation that was placed upon God's people. God's not pulling this trap card of like, oh, by the way, why don't you tithe? Everybody knew God expected the tithe. But it's also helpful to know it wasn't just an act of worship. It's not like God is this like, you know, glory hungry, like give me all your money and I don't need it. I'm just going to burn it up as you prove your worship to me. No, it was a very practical, tangible means that God implemented to support the work that he was doing to the temple. For example, the tithe was how the, the religious leaders and priests and spiritual leaders would be provided for, Right. The tribe of Levi, all these priests who are running God's worship and making sure that worship is happening, they can't work normal jobs. 
How are they going to feed their families? How are they going to get paid? It was through the tithe. If people are not faithfully tithing, the temple doesn't worship or the temple doesn't function and worship is not healthy. The tithe was also how the temple cared for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. All the marginalized, needy, and poor in society. How would they get provided for? Through the faithful tithe of God's people. If there's no tithing, there's no resources to care for the orphans, the widows. Poverty just rises rampantly and then chaos ensues. So the tithe was very important, not just for worship, but for communal health. And in verse 8, we see, but God's people were not doing this. They weren't tithing. Now, I want to give benefit of the doubt, especially for those of you guys who maybe are Christian. I, I think nobody's like, I don't want to tithe. Or like, oh, I don't want to give to the Lord. But isn't it not with money that we give ourselves so much room to justify and rationalize? Isn't that not true? I'm pretty sure Israelites were the same way. Like, God, times are tough. My crops are not doing well. So I'll still give you money, but I'll give you 6%, not 10%. Just by definition, that's not a tithe. Tithe is 10%. So when somebody says like, Pastor Sam, I made $100 and I want to tithe $6. I'll tell them, I don't, you can do that, but that's not a tithe <laughs> by definition. So maybe that's what was going on. Whatever the case is, it's a big deal to God because he accuses them of robbery. You are robbing me by not offering what is clearly mine. Now, let me kind of break out of the biblical foundation to give a modern example. Parents, or even just older brothers or sisters, imagine there's a kid. This kid's like, man, I can't wait for my, my fourth birthday party, but like I'm short some money and, you know, I want to like feed my friends and buy some pizza. So like, you know what, out of the goodness of my heart, here's a hundred dollars. I, I want you to steward this money well. I'm giving it to you for a specific purpose. It is to feed your friends. And I know pizza's not going to cost $100, so bring me the change, right? I want the change. I want the money back. So say a week goes by, you hear nothing about the birthday. You hear nothing about the party. You don't get the change. So you confront this kid and you're like, hey, like, where's my money? The kid's like, oh, actually, I canceled the birthday. I just used the money to buy uh, like, you know, so, uh, some Pokemon cards. Uh, I, sorry, I just kept the change because, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. Wouldn't you be like, that's robbery. <laughs> like, that's my money. And you are robbing me in its intent and purpose, which you did not fulfill. And you're robbing me in the ownership, which is it's not yours. And that's a loose analogy of what was happening. And the saddest part is it's self-destructive because literally the nation was suffering as a result of their failure. It was harming the community. And so with that principle in mind, the correlation that I think that is so interesting, which is two sides of the same coin is this. This is a universal application. When God's people slide spiritually, they typically cease to give as they should. But the opposite is true. When God's people cease to give as they should, they typically will slide spiritually. Those two things are married together. So that's the brief explanation where the concept of tithing comes from biblically. It is the explicit command God gave to Israel to offer up the first and the best of the tenth of all of their goods and income as, yes, an act of worship, but also as a well to support the work of charity and God's ministry and community. Now, how do we today, New Testament Christians, relate to this concept of tithing? Point number two, why do we tithe and give offering? Now, again, it's helpful to clarify why God cared so much about his people faithfully giving. It is not because God needs money. 
So our church right now, like, praise God, like on, on Sundays, more and more people are coming and we are happy about that. But, you know, I'm sure some of you guys know, sometimes it gets pretty filled in here. So we're praying about it. And it's not like God's like, oh my gosh, great. So we might need a new building. I'm short, like, you know, $2 million, like offer, <laughs> like offer money because I need it. No, no, no. Obviously that's not true. So what is the reason? God wants the hearts of his people. But he knows that the love of money and material things sometimes uniquely especially serves as a powerful barrier between him and his people's hearts. Look at what the New Testament says very explicitly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. God knows. You want to know where someone's heart is? Follow their money. That's why God cares about us so much. He knows that we have a tendency to fall in love with material things and place too much hope and trust in our things rather than in God, in creation over the creator. Romans 1.25, very explicit. This is kind of the root basis of a lot of how people turn away from God. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God knows that. He knows what, how to get to you and what gets in the way. Now for Israel, the tithe was a safeguard to remind them to place their hope and trust in God's faithfulness and God's provision, no matter how bleak their circumstances are. It was a needed intentional form of accountability and a tangible expression of faith that God's in control, whether I just got a raise or I just got fired. So in their failing to tithe faithfully, they were not only robbing God, but they're revealing their internal spiritual state, which is this money that should go to you is better in my hands because I'm in control, God, or I know what's better, or I know how to provide for myself. So let's turn our attention to us today. So what principle of giving should we have in mind and why should we give? Well, to start off, we are no longer under the Old Testament law, okay? So if you're true to what tithing means, it's actually biblically inaccurate to say, Christians, you should tithe. There is no New Testament verse or text that commands any Christian to tithe. Did you know that? Some of you guys are like, (laughs) finally, I don't have to give money anymore. That should show where your soul is at if that's what you're thinking, okay? But there's no New Testament command. Now, that's not to say the concept of a tithe, the language of it, or the practice of it is a bad idea. I actually think it's a very good idea. It's a very helpful principle. And in fact, if you're rejoicing, you shouldn't because the New Testament doesn't lower the bar. It raises it. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So then why do we give offering and why do so many Christians practice tithing? I have to give credit to the late Pastor Tim Keller for this insight because it's just so good. But one of the main underlying reasons why it's so important to develop a habit and practice of giving to the Lord is because the money in particular and possessions, it's dangerous not because it is more sinful than other sins, but it is dangerous because it has this unique power to be blinding. What that means is you can't detect it. The blindness is seen in verse 8. Again, they all know they should be tithing. So when God says, you're robbing me, it should be as clear as day what he's talking about. But they're like, what are you talking about, God? What do you mean we're robbing you? As if like, hello, are you blind? That's the reason the Bible talks so much about money. It has to bring it to light because materialism and greed, again, it is deceptive and blinding by nature. And just look at your experience in life. It is so true. Look how Jesus talks about this in Luke 12, 15. He says, watch out. 
Be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I could do page after page after page about verses like that, where God and Jesus and the Apostle Paul uniquely warns like, hey, if there's any sin you have to put on red alert in your life, it's not adultery. It's not uh, these kinds of things. It's literally, it's materialism. It's the love of money. Jesus never says, watch out for adultery. I love this. The example that Pastor Tim Keller is, which is such a visual example. He's like, nobody after cheating on their wife wakes up in the morning, like, oh my God, I didn't know you're my wife. It's very evident what you're doing. It's very obvious you're in sin. But nobody is able to detect greed and materialism in that way. In fact, how many of you guys, when you come on a Sunday and our presider says, let's do a time of confession, confess, God, forgive me for being greedy. Forgive me for my materialism. How many of you guys, when you're in a small group and you're going around confessing sins, you know what I think I'm really struggling with? I love money. Nobody says that. You know why? Because that is a sin that is less clear by nature. And it is easy to find justifications on why we need certain things or how we're not as bad as that person. Now, what do I mean by materialistic and greedy? Here's a definition that I think is helpful. Excess concern for, worry about, love of, and need for money and possessions. And if this does not describe the culture and the air we breathe as upper middle class Orange County suburbans, we're blind. This is us. So what I'm getting at is it is extremely difficult and potentially biblically impossible to self-diagnose if you are being greedy and materialistic. That's like saying a blind person, go look in the mirror and fix your issue. They can't. They can't see it which goes back to the reason we give. So then how do we protect ourselves against something we can't see? What is a protective guideline the Bible suggests? The tithe. It's the tithe. We all understand the concept of putting your money where your mouth is. So for example, if I told you, you know, now that the Dodgers got Otani, man, the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. No matter what, guaranteed, and I'm talking a big game and I'm professing my confidence in them, you have every right to say, oh, you really feel that strongly, huh? Put your money where your mouth is. Why don't you bet $1,000 that that will happen? I'm personally not into the betting world. I did hear like some of you are. Uh, I have more to say about that in another context, but let's just say, okay, so you, you bet money. You would think twice, right? Oh, this confidence. Can I back that with my finance now? Am I really that confident? And if I said, you know what? I'm so confident. I'll put a dollar on it. You would laugh in my face like, dude, you really don't believe that. And how much you're willing to put down is correlated to the level of faith you have in that thing. Is that not right? So for God's people, how do you test if you really believe everything actually belongs to God? How do you test if you really believe that God is truly in control? How do you know if you are not being self-indulgent and materialistic? God says, the tithe. It's there to help you. Now, let's get even more practical. You might be wondering, so, okay, here's the application, Pastor Sam. Are you saying, okay, I should get 10% of all my income? You know, it's kind of year end, so from now till March, we're all going to look at the number, look at our finances. Are you saying I should get 10% of that as principal and now give it to Grace Hill? Is that what you're saying? That'd be so twisted. I was like, yeah, and let's close in prayer. That's not it at all. My conscience is so clear because back then, they were called to give that money to the temple. Grace Hill is not the equivalent of a temple. You know why? The temple back then was not a local church. 
there were not local temples. There wasn't the temple of Winter Park. There wasn't the temple of LA. There was one temple for all of the people of God. It was a singular one-stop institution that served the needs of the entire community. It supported the religious leaders that served everybody. It supported the poor and marginalized in the entire community, meaning there is no New Testament equivalent for that kind of institution today. It is diversified and spread across a multitude of churches, parachurch organizations, missions organizations, mercy ministries, outreach organizations. So in other words, an accurate biblical parallel to tithe to the temple doesn't necessarily mean just to your local church. So if you came up to me and said, I was convicted to tithe my income, Pastor Sam, but God also has convicted me to really care for orphans. So you know what I want to do? Can I give 8% to the church and 2% to orphans? You know what I would say? Amen. Do that. Guess what? Nobody ever says that to me. (laughs) Nobody ever says, you know what the issue is? The issue is I want to give, but I want to give it to the other parts of God's kingdom. Nobody says that. It is statistically proven. If just American professing Christians all really tie their income, world evangelization would be complete and poverty would be way better than it is today. So it's not where you're giving, it's that nobody's giving. That's the real issue. And we, we, we rationalize. Now, you can do more, but generally, for our context, I'm pretty sure one practical application, especially if you're a member, is, so what about giving to the local church? Because most of what that is our understanding of regular giving. So let's get very specific, okay? The vision of Grace Hill Church, okay? We just did a membership round, and all of us, if you took membership, should understand this. The vision of Grace Hill Church, and any other local church for that matter, it lives or dies based off the faithful giving of its people. I hope you guys know this. I'm getting very specific here. For example, who pays for the pastors and the staff to be able to devote their time to do the work of ministry? Like, how am I able to spend my time studying the Bible so that I can give you God's word rather than having to work a day job to provide for my family? It's the church. The people give and they they literally are able to pay for pastors. If you didn't give faithfully, I'm not up here preaching. There's no pastors. That's just the honest truth. Who pays for the rental fee to worship here at Bonner Park as opposed to having to Clark Park in, Bonner, you know, in Fullerton because we have no money? We're paying to be able to worship for all the food and coffee that we announce. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't grow off trees. How are we able to do that? All these visitors who come home always say, oh, the church was so welcoming and hospitable. There's like free coffee. There's free food. Uh, you know, sometimes I want to be like, it's not free. You know, sometimes I want to say that because reality is our members give faithfully to be able to do that. If someone in our midst loses a loved one or they're going through a bereavement season or there's orphans and widows in our midst, where do we get the resources to now provide for them, to give them counseling, to give them meals and to help them? The faithful giving of our people comes from your faithful giving. In other words, I have no problem explicitly stating this biblical formula that God's church runs when God's people give God's money to his purposes for the work of God's ministry. That is the ecosystem of the kingdom of God. God, 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 God. That's when the church is healthiest and thriving and moving forward in its vision. That's why if you become a member of our church, one of the commitments explicitly stayed on our members' covenant, not as a rule, but as a means of accountability is there. And if you're a member, I hope you know, this was also part of what you covenanted too. I commit to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the church for the work of ministry, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. If at any time as a member of this church, you feel like we are not doing that, I'll be the first to say, stop giving. Do not give if you don't think we're doing that. That's a separate conversation. 
That's not even to say we're the only entity that does that. Like I said, if you're like, God has convicted me to give to another type of ministry to further his kingdom, I would say, amen, that you are even thinking about that kind of conviction. But at our church, that's why we exist. That's what we're trying to do. That's what you're giving towards. Now, I'll say more on this later, but generally speaking, I do think our church does a decent job at this, okay? The reason I say decent is because I want to get specific today. I don't think all of you do. And I think the Spirit has something to say to you, but a large amount of people do. And I want to encourage you later about that. And just, I'm not up here because like, it's the year end and we're like, oh my gosh, we're in the red. Oh, thank God we're preaching on Malachi. Sam, like, take your time, man. We are not in the red. We're actually doing relatively well. So praise God for that. There's no special offering after this. Like, I'm not going to be, you know what our application is? QR code. I mean, just go there, see where it leads, you know? I don't know. Maybe the Spirit's going to lead you somewhere. I don't know where it's going to lead. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Venmozelle? Well, I didn't know. No, no. Opposite of that. In fact, the New Testament condemns that kind of giving. It says, if you feel forced after this sermon, or if you feel guilty, or you feel burdened, like I got to pay back God, don't give. Do not give in that way. God does not get pleased by that because he's not after your money. He's after your heart. So as you think about the idea of giving to God and his purposes, again, as cliche as it sounds, what does your bank account reveal? Just even this past year, about your spiritual health, and your spiritual status when it comes to your medi, which leads to number three, what does our tithing and offering reveal? Again, if someone had, say uh, you're going on a first date with someone that you don't know that well, and the way that, you know, like these talk shows or like these, uh, these game shows and these variety shows and drama shows today, they're coming all these interesting ways where people fall in love. Uh, one thing I would create is like, here's this person. The only thing you know about them is their bank account. <laughs> That's all you know. And you can determine, do you want to be in a relationship with this person? What does this person value? And as much as you would think, oh, that's so silly, wouldn't it tell a lot if the first thing you found out about someone was their bank account? In fact, some of the closest relationships we have in this life, we don't know that information because it's so vulnerable, is it not? Like if somebody, if you accidentally airdropped your bank account to everyone here in this church, like boom, airdrop, wouldn't you leave the church? (laughs) That is a vulnerable thing. A lot of us don't even let close friends have full access to our bank accounts. Why? Because it shows where we actually spend our money. And our money oftentimes says more about where we place our faith and hope than even the strongest words and professions. Now, this is where it's helpful to look back in the text and see what specifically God is communicating about the tithe. And again, credit to Pastor Tim Keller. In verse 10, he doesn't say just bring the tithe anywhere. He says, bring it into the storehouse, right? the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, the storehouse was basically the treasury of the temple. So let's say Buena Park is a temple. There would be a room that's essentially like a vault where we put all the grain, all the offering, all the money. And this would now be our one-stop resource that we pull out from in order to now finance the work of the temple, to support the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, to support all that is happening in that entity. And you know what's obviously interesting is the Christianity was not the only religion and Christian temples weren't the only temples. All religions had a temple and a system that would have to have a treasury that would bankroll and finance that spiritual institution. Make sense? And they all serve the same function. The treasury or storehouse, people would put money into that to support the worship and salvation system of that deity that would say, this is how you begin, you find nirvana. This is how you enter into the after. This is how you be reincarnated into a better form. Christianity was saying, obviously, this is how you are in right relationship with the one true God. All different religious messages, same financial system. So what God is calling his people to do is not to just bring their tithe. He's saying, bring the tithe to me and my temple. 
my storehouse. The implication of that is not, are you going to tithe or not? The implication is you're tithing no matter what. Let me direct it to the one true God. That's what he's saying here. The same is true of us today. The problem today is not that you're not giving. Every single one of you is a faithful giver. Every single one of you. It's that if you're not giving to God's storehouse and treasury, you're supporting some other one. For example, understandable, a lot of people, you know, I don't give to God. I find it very difficult to give to God, Pastor Sam. And you have, but you have no problem spending money on expensive food and drinks. You know, I think what God would say is like, you know, my storehouse is empty and you're saying, God, I have no money. And then look at the temple of Nordstrom, the temple of Stereoscope. A lot of your money's in there. <laughs> Where did that money come from? A lot of you guys, you drink $7 lattes and say, I have no money, seven days a week. Tie the latte. Start somewhere. Some of you guys wear new clothes every single week. And I'm flabbergasted because that's not my personal value. Sometimes I hear the price tag on some of these clothes and my mind is blown. You know what that means? Your functional temple, you worship, your wardrobe. And underneath every temple worship is a belief in a salvation system. And your salvation is people's understanding and perspective of you. You think the way they view you is going to gain you respect and security and happiness and joy. That's why you're always looking out for the next sale, spending time and time again. You have clothes you haven't even worn that are just getting old in there. And you're saying, oh, but it's so hard to give to God's storehouse. Just know, it is convicting when you really think all the temples and storehouses of the world, our money is everywhere, people. The Airbnb gods, the shoe gods, the golf gods, the hobby gods. We bankroll all of these things we love. And surprisingly, no matter how hard times get, is that not true? And I'm talking to myself here. Like, I think I own a 10% share of stereoscope. I mean that. Every time I walk in, they're always like, oh, Sam's here. I'm like, oh, God, put my head down, right? If you find it hard to give to God, but you have no problem going on these expensive trips or shopping sprees or buying new accessories, at least be humble enough to admit, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bankrolling something else. God, help me to see that. I'm looking for approval, acceptance, security, and hope and other things that can't give it to me. And I have this problem why I don't want to put it into your storehouse though. Or maybe you think you're off the hook and you're thinking, keep going, Pastor Sam, all these consumeristic people. You know what I do? I don't spend money. I save. I'm, I'm, I'm way wiser. I know we shouldn't be consumeristic. So you know what I save? I invest and I prepare. And you know what I would say? That's not God's storehouse. Your temple is 401k. Robin Hood. Your stock portfolio. Your savings is your temple. You want control. You don't give control to God. You prepare for your worst days. Let me tell you this. Uh, I went to uh, missions my freshman year of college. My co-leader, uh, his name was David O. A month ago, he was a healthy man. Today, he's passed away by a freak accident that medically is just kind of like, it's just one of those like literally God forbidden forsaken things that he left a wife and three kids at home now. He could have had the most robust savings portfolio. It doesn't stop death. It doesn't stop cancer. It's not going to stop you from having freak accidents. It's not as secure as you think. 
And what Keller would say, and I quote this, he says, whatever it's easiest to spend money on, that's your real temple. He says, it is effortless to spend money on that which is your real God. The money just flows. It is the real God, Savior, Lord, hope, meaning, and happiness in your life. No matter what you say you believe, because money will always show what you worship. So the reality is, in our day and age, money is a security idol, approval idol, control idol, whatever it is. If it's not given to the Lord in the way that he calls us to, you are struggling with idolatry. And God calls us to be generous and have a loose grip on our money. Please get this. Not to enslave you, but to free you from your enslavement to money. The Bible literally says money and possessions and the love of money, it's like a snare and a trap that leads to destruction. And the point of the traps and snares, you don't necessarily see it, but when you're stuck in it, it is hard to get out. That is why some of the most joyful Christians have nothing. Missionaries that literally are living huts and tents are the most liberated people in the world. The richest people who have mortgages to pay and they're spending all this money and accumulating their wardrobe. Where are you going to store this clothes? How are you going to take care of these money? I have seven credit cards. Is that a lot pretty enslaving and, and, and stressful? And this is why God was so angry with his people. They were playing the religious game, talking the talk, but their treasures were clearly elsewhere and they were not backing up their faith and their giving. It was hurting their relationship with God. It was hurting their relationship with each other. And this is where God says something very interesting. Verse 10. I hope you really see what it's saying here, okay? It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. So you might've heard before, like don't test God. God actually says like, here's an exception. Try me. Try me. Test me in this, that if you bring the full tithe, if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing. Now, I wish I had more time to speak on this, but the idea is literally in this text and context that God's people were not tithing faithfully and they were suffering as a result. Now, I'm sure that raises a lot of questions and I love to talk about it, but literally that's what it's saying. It's saying, hey, your unfaithfulness in tithing, it's somehow correlated to the way that your crops are failing and the suffering you're experiencing, okay? God says that. And here's what he says. He challenges them and puts them to the test and says, you think giving to me has no benefit and it's just the idea you're throwing money into the air as if it's just getting burned up and wasted? He says, try me. Bring the full tithe and see if I will not open up the treasures of heaven and pour down blessing upon you. Now, the reason I think people are nervous about this text is because the prosperity camp really hijacks this text and says, therefore, QR code, give money because God's going to do a tenfold. Or like, are you starting up a business? Give money to God because he's going to make your business successful. In no way is that necessarily what that is communicating. I will say that might be true, okay? But I don't think that's the heart of what's going on here. What it is saying is that there is a God ordained promise backed by himself that faithfully giving to him and trusting him through generosity leads to a spiritual blessing that you cannot otherwise experience if you are selfish and stingy with your money. That is a biblical principle. This is where I think we have a lot to learn from our parents. Our parents, maybe it was just more religious in nature, they are givers, especially if they are Christian, right? Uh, my parents, anytime, like I would, oh, let me put it this way. If you got a, a $5,000 bonus at your work, Christmas season, you did a great job. What's the first thing you want to spend your money on? That's your God. That's your God. That's what first fruits is. And our parents would tell them all the time, you got a raise, you got a new job, make sure you give to the Lord first. That's what a first fruit is. Who got you that job? 
This is the Lord's money. Give it to him. And that's something that I think we need to maybe recapture as a people. Now, again, more to be said about that, but I really want to make sure we, we close in a practical application. So return to God. What does it mean to return to God? And one thing I've grown to really not like as a pastor is this arbitrary, mystical, kind of like hazy. What it means to return to God is like, you just kind of like draw near to him, you know? Like, what does that even mean, right? Like, if, if, if my wife was there and she's telling me like, hey, these three things are causing a problem in our relationship. And I was just like, oh, forget about those. I just want to like feel close to you, right? That's how people talk sometimes. And you know what that is? That's really all it is, is you want to keep your idols and the things you love, but you want God to be close to you. Relationships don't work that way. So God in Malachi is not like, return to me and I just want your earnestness. He's like, no, you know what it means to return to me? Look at your marriage. You're giving me your leftovers. Look at your money. So how do we grow in this practice of generosity? Very specific to our church. I think there's three categories of people in this room when it comes to giving offerings. There are the people who give faithfully and make it a point to give. There are the people who know they should give, but because it's hard, they either do it sporadically or not at all. And then some of you, maybe you're not a Christian or you just never knew, like, I did not know this is something that the Bible called me to. Now, because I wanted to make sure I'm not just talking out of air, I actually asked our finance team, can you give me some data? Okay, don't give me names or specifics, but from September till now, can you give me some data so I can see how we are doing as a body? And again, in one sense, it's individual faithfulness, but in another sense, we are a body. We have one storehouse. We all serve and do our vision of grace as one entity. So we're all connected here in that way. And I said, okay, so we have a membership roster about roughly 170 people, okay? And here's the three categories of encouragement and exhortation I want to give. Praise God. The person I was talking to said, around 110 members give faithfully online. And by that, it means they use the recurring PayPal system, right? So like around 110 people give faithfully, praise God for that. And they said, another 20 to 30 likely will give at the kiosk on a regular basis. Praise God for that. So when you put that all together, that's actually pretty encouraging. Thank you so much if that's you. 130 to 140 members give faithfully. And if you are in that number, I want to encourage you. Your giving is not wasted. God sees it. God uses it. It is helping us advance what God's trying to do at our church. At the same time, I also still want to challenge you that unfortunately, but also in an exhortive way, in the New Testament, the standard seems to be not less than the tithe of 10%, but so much more. That Jesus through the new covenant now should unlock the spirit of unconventional generosity where our mentality is not, how much money do I have to give to be faithful to God? But rather, how much of God's money do I need to keep to be okay so that I can give it away? That is a fundamentally different perspective. In other words, 10% of the Old Testament was the standard. In the New Testament, 10% are training wheels. You need them, but you shouldn't stay there. You got to learn how to ride a bike and be unlocked to freely give as Jesus gave. And it's a muscle. Now, you know, some churches actually are not fans of this PayPal recurring system because it's so passive by nature, right? Money gets pulled for Netflix account. Money gets pulled from the church. Now, again, that's not to say it's a bad thing per se. I personally use that too. It's convenient. But I will say if that's ripping out the part of the worship for you where it's not intentional, it's mindless, I'll say think of a way where you can be more intentional, okay? Now, I did want to uh, give you my personal example of this and how it plays out in my life. So I do that. I do the PayPal thing where literally 10% just comes out. And God was like, this is how I promise you, I'm trying to practice what I preach. He, like as I was reading the word and I was praying, God was convicting me. And here's some of the ways that I cut corners, okay? So he's like, hey, Sam, like, um, I'm just gonna throw a number out there just to give you an example. He's like, you made um, $3,300, right? I noticed only 300 came in. 
And you know why? You know, what I tell God is like, God, I'm sorry. I, I just round it down. I like it to be clean. I'm, I'm being very vulnerable. That's really what I said. It's just very clean. And God was like, oh, yeah. And, and, and I'll tell God, like, but God, it's just $33. And he says the same thing back to me. Exactly. It's just $33. So round up. I was so convicted. You know why? Because when you cut corners with God, it becomes a chronic habit. And integrity, it's shaped in not glorious moments, but in very ordinary moments. One way this showed up at a church, a member was asking, just no PayPal, it takes a cut. Every church kind of absorbs it because we just have to, what can we do? But the more money you get, the more PayPal takes, it's a cut. So our members were like, hey, PayPal's taking a lot of our money. That's not going to God's storehouse. That's going to PayPal. Like, what can we do about this? And our finance team was like, well, to be honest, PayPal is there because everybody just likes convenience these days. But technically, if you don't want to pay the fee, you can write a check. We just know it's not as easy. A couple of our members took that call and they're like, dude, I want my money to go to God. So they literally write out checks. And I was like, you know, at the very least, not saying everyone has to write checks. I don't think I will either. But that's what intentionality that God is calling us to. Parents, same thing. Your children will learn their worldview of money through you and your example, okay? And I have to move quickly because I know I'm running out of time. To the second group of people who know you should give, but it's hard, so you either don't or do it in a regular way, which according to our numbers for membership, it's about 30 of you. I don't know who you are. I don't know your names, but I think the word particularly today would say, hey, uh, if you take what you make and you times it by 10 and it equals zero, that's robbery. I think that's what God would say. And it's doing you more damage than you will ever know. Or if it's more sporadic in nature, the generosity, discipline, and muscle, I'm not saying therefore you need to repay all of that or do some exorbitant commitment like I'm going to start going crazy. No, no, no. Build up the muscle and start somewhere. If you want the training wheels of 10% is helpful. You're not obligated to that. But just know this. The reason you're feeling so far from God is because you will spend money on what you care for and you will start to care for what you spend money on. That's why they're so correlated. In other words, if you start to give money to the things of God, you will start to care for the things of God. And as a result, you will draw near to God. That's why when somebody puts money into the stocks or invests in stocks, they don't care about all the other stocks. They care about the stocks that their money is in. So if you have no money in the kingdom of God, you will not care about the kingdom of God. That is just an objective truth and reality. So what are you investing in? That's something to consider. And third and last, if you don't even realize this is something the Bible called you to, that's why here at our church, we preach the Bible. Not just the stuff that's like really fun to hear, but the whole Bible. What does God have to say about not just part of your life, but all of your life? And I, I, you don't have to feel guilty or bad. That is the opposite of what God desires because he wants your heart. In the culture we live in, if you are not on guard against money and possessions, those things have a power and rule over you that you're not aware of. And God wants to help you to be liberated from that, to be freed to give. Even if you're not a Christian, part of the gospel is an invitation to be free from the slavery to have and possess and to own and to invest in things that matter like love, justice, mercy. And just to close, how do you do this joyfully? and not under compulsion, and not just religious routine. Christmas is all about this. Before Christ will ever become the treasure of your heart, you have to go back to the truth 2,000 years ago that while we were still sinners, you were the treasure of his heart. Remember, whatever you treasure, it's shown by what you're willing to do for it. You will pay any cost, travel any distance, pay the ultimate price, and even die for it. 
And the most obvious example of this in a worldly sense is the sacrificial love of a parent for a child. And a week from now, we're going to celebrate the birth and arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, who crosses over from the riches of heaven into the poverty of this broken world to be born in a manger and ultimately give his life and die for what? For that which he treasures, which is you and me. And I love this accompanying verse, and we'll close here. Every other treasure in the world will make you die to purchase it. Jesus is the only treasure that died to purchase you. And that's why in light of the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, he says, your giving and your earnestness, it's not a command. It's birthed out of the grace that you've been shown by a Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. And I love what this pastor says. He says, therefore, you want to know how to give? Don't sit with a calculator. Sit with the cross. And as you do that, the Spirit will make you give in the way that he gave. Let's close in prayer. I invite the praise team up. Let me close for us. Father, we thank you so much. God, we know that your word makes it clear. You want all of us. We know oftentimes it could feel uncomfortable, could touch areas of our lives that we make us feel vulnerable. But I pray, Lord, that you can just help us, God. And even as we take a time to respond, you give us openness in your spirit.